Well, good morning, Bethel. Good morning. Uh, if you're ever speaking on stage, don't sit in the middle of the row. It makes it really awkward to have to get out in the middle of prayer. Well, good morning and welcome to church this morning. I hope that your holiday season was filled with rest and peace and joy, all that it could be. And I hope that as a church, as we've been talking about, you found time this holiday season to slow down and just behold Jesus, the man that he is, how he came, what it means for Emmanuel, God with us to be here with us. And thank you for being here. Happy New Year's Eve. Anyone excited for the new year? How many people are planning on staying up until midnight? Like five of us. How many of us are planning on going to bed at like 12.01 of those five? Because I know that's me. Are any parents going to like let their kids stay up until midnight? Okay, that makes that very clear. I guess that's just not the standard procedure anymore. Anyway, New Year's is always that peculiar time, isn't it? Like it doesn't feel like a lot's changing. Like really, for a lot of us, all that's going to change is we're going to start writing 2024 on our dated stuff instead of 2023. And those of us who are still writing 2022 are probably going to change to 2023. We're always a little bit of a year behind. So like nothing much really changes, but something about this year causes us to usually do two things. We look back at the year we've had, the last 365 days, and reflect, okay, what have we been doing? How's the year been going? You know, all of that stuff. And then look forward to what's coming next. Brand new year, 2024. Let's go get it. Let's go see what the year might have in store. And so in that spirit, I wanted to ask you guys a couple questions. When you look back at 2023, all that it's been, the ups, the downs, how have you seen God at work? in your life, in your heart, around you in our church? What are the ways you've seen him work? Maybe it's with your school and your friends there, or your job and your coworkers. Maybe it's in your family, or maybe it's just in your heart. You know, I've seen God cultivate a greater love for him in my heart this year. What are the ways that you've been seeing God at work? Because my hope and my prayer is that you've seen him work this year. Do, do something that you, that you knew God's been working in and around me. And then so when we look forward, do you want to see God work next year? Do you want to see him work through you, work in you, work in the world around you? And I would, I would think that for the majority of us, I know for me, I would say, like, of course, I want to see God at work in my life. I want to see him work in my family, in my heart. I want to see him continue to work through our church, through our students' ministry, our kids' ministry, through, through Bethel Southwest. I want to see God at work. And I would, I would hope that that would be the same for a lot of us. But if I'm honest, sometimes I can know up here that God's working, but it's, it's hard to see. I just, I can't see it. I know, you know the Bible tells me he's working and, and I'm trusting that he's working, but I just, God, maybe I'm not seeing it. Maybe I don't get it. Maybe I don't feel it, but I just, I don't feel like I, like I know it in here that he's working. I, I can't see it. And so we're going to dive into scripture today. And we're going to see what it takes to see God at work. If you were with us in the fall, we began to walk through the book of Acts. And we saw the story of the early church as it progressed, starting in Jerusalem, starting with Peter and the apostles. And we've seen amazing things, God at work, in ways like we've never seen before. We've seen the church grow from 120 people on the planet who knew about Jesus and who believed in him to 5,000 in a matter of months in one city. We've seen people healed. We've seen people brought back to God, baptized in the Spirit, and everything that it's brought. And so today we're jumping back in. 
And I am praying that today we can see God at work, even this morning. Our passage is it's a little bit of a long one, so we're going to jump around. If you grab your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 6. And we're going to walk through the story of Stephen. Now, Stephen was introduced at the first part of Acts chapter 6. If you remember all the way back before Christmas, we walked through that, those first seven verses. Stephen was introduced as a leader for the church, as a man full of faith. And today we're going to hear the story of Stephen, and through God's word, Stephen actually shows us, what do I need to get so that I can see God working around me? How do I see God at work? So if you have your Bibles, or if you have them on your phone, uh, you can turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 8. If you have the Bible and the seat back in front of you, it's on page 775. As you turn there, let me just set the stage, and as we look back a bit. As the apostles have been preaching in Jerusalem, starting with Pentecost and going out from there, we've seen them transforming lives. But we've also seen them bump up against the Jewish authorities called the Sanhedrin on two separate occasions. And it's clear that the apostles are seeing God move in mighty ways, and the Sanhedrin cannot see what God's doing. And they're standing opposed to him. So as the church continues to grow, they need more people to serve in different roles and different leaderships to be able to distribute food. And they choose seven men, seven men full of faith and full of the Spirit to take on this task. And Stephen is one of those. And so directly after this story where they choose Stephen and they choose the other leaders, it zeroes in on Stephen's story for two chapters. So we're going to go all the way from Acts 6 verse 8 all the way to 8 all the way to chapter 8, verse 3. So we're going to be jumping around. All the scriptures will be up there. You can follow along in your Bibles. But right now we'll start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great signs and wonders among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. They began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him. So as Stephen continues to serve God in his role as he serves and as he distributes food to all those around him, he's been gifted by God to perform signs and miracles in front of everyone for all to see. And if we look back in Acts, we know that whenever the early church was able to perform signs and miracles like Peter, they always took the time, as that was happening, to proclaim the gospel and talk about Jesus to these people. And so as Stephen is doing this, as the usual pattern is, devout Jewish men would come and oppose him. They'd say, you know, Stephen, you're not supposed to be doing that. And they would argue with him in the town square. But because Stephen had the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 8, they had nothing to say. Much like when the apostles would stand before the Sanhedrin, full of the wisdom of the Spirit, speaking the words that God had given them, they had nothing to say. And so these men who come against Stephen, they hatch a plan. If you jump down to Acts 6, uh, verse 12, So they, the men who opposed Stephen, stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops talking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And so these men hatch a plan and they decide to lie about Stephen. If they couldn't stop him with their arguments because he was too wise, they would simply just stop him with the law. And so they accuse Stephen of blaspheming against the temple and against God. They, th- they say that Stephen is saying that Jesus is going to come and destroy everything, change the customs of Moses, and completely destroy the law. Now, of course, we know Jesus would change everything, but not to destroy anything that God had done, but to fulfill it and restore it all. 
And so these men accuse Stephen and they bring him in front of the Jewish authorities. And from what we've seen of the Sanhedrin, it's no surprise that they immediately believe what's been said about Stephen. And so they call Stephen to defend himself in chapter 7. So the first part of chapter 7, he says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? And so Stephen now is given the opportunity to defend himself. Stephen, this is what's been said. This is what we've heard of you. Is this true? What do you say? And Stephen's defense is, I mean, I would think it was odd. If somebody was to come and accuse me of something I didn't do and said, is this true? I immediately would just say, no, that's not what I was saying. And I would defend myself. But Stephen doesn't do that. He doesn't defend himself by recounting what he did or didn't do. As is the pattern in Acts, he goes back to the Old Testament and he recites to them what God has been doing. Not just through Jesus and the church, but all the way back to Abraham. All the way back to Genesis, Stephen recounts God's work. And the first 53 verses of Acts chapter 7, that we're going to park here for a little bit, is Stephen walking through Old Testament history 101. By the way, it's to the teachers of the law. Because Stephen was able to see what God was doing. He could see what was actually going on in God's plan, even though the Sanhedrin couldn't. And so we're going to walk through this speech because this sermon from Peter from Stephen shows us how we can see God at work. And more importantly, why we might miss it sometimes. And so he recounts the promises of God to Abraham for descendants, for land, for a relationship with God. And then he begins to move down through the Old Testament. And in Acts 7, verse 8, he says, Then he, God, gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac, and, and circumcised him after eight days of his birth, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So Stephen tracks Abraham's lineage. He says there was Abraham, and then there was Isaac, and then there was Jacob, and then there was the twelve. And the patriarchs are the twelve sons of Jacob, and these family lines would actually be the basis for all of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel would come from these 12 sons of Jacob. And so they were the foundation of the Jewish people, of Israel. And then Stephen says this, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. So Stephen goes all the way back and points to the very first Israelites, Jacob's sons. He says that they were jealous of Joseph, and so they got rid of him. Because, you know, you know, dad likes Joseph best. He gets this big coat. If you've ever seen Joseph in the coat of many colors, that's the one we're talking about. And, he sa- and the, these brothers say, you know, that's not fair. He's the youngest. I don't like that. We're just going to get rid of him. And they sell him into slavery. But they missed a crucial detail about Joseph. God was with him. The patriarchs of Israel could not see what God was doing because they were so blinded by their own jealousy. They were so jealous and angry with Joseph that they couldn't see what God was doing. And so Stephen goes, the very first Israelites did this, guys. He looks at the Sanhedrin and says, this is what's always been. This has been the pattern from our very first forefathers. They couldn't see what God was doing because they were blinded by jealousy. Now let me ask you this, church. Is it possible that we might do the same thing? Is it possible that my jealousy, my emotions, might blind me to the work that God is doing? And I get so caught up in what I feel should be happening that I miss out on what God's doing. 
And, and it's easy for me to think that that can't be the case because, you know, I, I go to church. I'm involved in my small group. Like, I'm a Christian. Why would my emotions be out of tune with God's plan? But as we see here, it all too often happens. It happens with God's people all of the time. Is it possible that some of the reasons we might not see God working is because we're holding on to jealousy, envy, pride, emotions that are blinding us to see the work that God's doing, just like the sons of Jacob. And so the patriarchs hated Joseph because he was the youngest. It didn't seem fair that Jacob favored him in different ways. They couldn't fathom God being with Joseph, so they just got rid of him, but they missed what God was doing. So then Stephen walks down, continues down through the story and says, okay, well then they sold Joseph into slavery, but God was with him and so God actually led Joseph to prosper in Egypt and he was able to save his family from a famine and so eventually they all went to Egypt. And he walks down from Joseph all the way down to Moses and recounts the story of the Israelites being um, enslaved in Egypt. And he walks down to Moses, God's ordained redeemer who would save the Israelites from slavery. God said, I am going to save my people and I'm going to do it through you, Moses. But just like Joseph before him, Moses again wasn't received by God's people. They even couldn't see what God was doing. So I'm jumping all the way to chapter 7, verse 35, where he says, this is the same Moses that they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? But he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. All the way from Israel, start with the 12 sons of Jacob to their freedom from the Israelites. They had rejected the people, or from the Egyptians, they had rejected the people that God was sending them. Their hearts were in the wrong place. And so Moses too, just like his father Jacob, is rejected. Because how could Moses, a man raised in an Egyptian palace, lead God's people? He doesn't get it because God couldn't choose Moses because Moses didn't understand what the Israelites were going through. And so the Israelites couldn't see it. So they reject Moses and they refuse to see what God was doing because they thought the Redeemer would come from one of them. It's not going to be someone like that. It's going to be one of us. So the Redeemer should be coming from one of the slaves, not from some runaway prince who doesn't get it. And again, it's easy to point fingers and say, how could you not see that God was using Moses? Because we know the story of Moses and the burning bush. Like, how could you, like Israel, how could you not see it? Of course God's been working, but we do the same thing. Isn't it easy to see that, you know, God can't be working in that person because that's not, like, they're not the ones that we've been praying for. Why would God be working in my coworker who's always dismissed me because I go to church instead of working in my family that I have been fervently praying for? Why would God be working with this person at school who is frankly just always a jerk when I've been praying for my friend to come and know Jesus? So often we get so blinded by the people we think God should be or is working in that we completely miss the people he's actually working through, just like the Israelites. Now, of course, Israel wouldn't always reject Moses and God would lead them out of captivity through him. But even after God's miraculous rescue of Israel, they still wouldn't listen. They still couldn't see because as soon as they received instruction from God, they get out of Egypt through a series of, frankly, the most amazing miracles, some of the most amazing miracles in the Old Testament. Immediately when God gives them instruction to say, okay, this is who I am. This is what I've done. Now, this is how I'm calling you to live. They immediately reject him. Jumping down to verse 39 of chapter 7, 
But our ancestors, the Israelites, refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and turned their hearts back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us a God who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And so as soon as they couldn't see what God was doing, as soon as they missed sight of it, they turned back to the ways that things used to be. They turned back to the ways that they used to do things. If you go back and read Exodus over and over again, the Israelites completely misremember that they were in slavery in Egypt. And they continue to say, we, we got to go back because the way we used to do things, it's better than this. It's better than what God could be doing. And they still couldn't see what God was doing. And again, like the Israelites, are there ways the way we used to do things might be keeping us from seeing God at work? You know, I, I don't think God could work that way because like, it, he can't be working over here because we've never done it that way. You know, my family's always done it a certain way. You know, we, we've always been at church together every single Sunday morning. Like, yeah, there's, there's ways he might want to grow us through things like serving, but we've always, like, we sit together every Sunday morning. We come in through the side doors. We sit in the back row. That's what we do. That's, our, that's what our family does. That's how we're supposed to work. But could it be possible that God's trying to change the ways we do things? And by holding on to the ways we used to do them, we're missing out. We can't see the work that God's doing because we're so caught up in the ways we used to do things or the ways we want to do things. Just like the Israelites. And so you see, the thinking that permeated the Israelites' thoughts, that Jacob's sons' thoughts, and everyone all the way down from the time of Jacob and Esau down to the patriarchs, down to Moses, and even to the time of King David, uh, Stephen says, was that the Israelites always wanted to try and make God work on their terms. God, it can't be Joseph. I've got to feel better about this. God, it can't be Moses. It can't be that guy. God, it can't be this way. It's got to be the way I want to go. And so they always tried to make God work on their terms. But despite this, God was always, always faithful. He always brought them back. He always provided. He always led them into the promised land that he had given them. And so Stephen says that God's favor stayed with the Israelites despite their unfaithfulness all the way down until the time of David. And so David establishes the kingdom and Solomon, his son, then goes and builds a beautiful temple for God. But again, Stephen says, they're missing something, guys. We got so caught up in this temple that Solomon built that we missed something. Acts 7, verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is simply my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Where would my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? So Stephen looks at the Old Testament teachers at the Sanhedrin, walks through the Old Testament and says, look at what our forefathers did. At every turn, we try and make God work on our terms. Through the people we wanted to, through the ways we wanted to feel, through the ways we wanted to do it, and the houses we wanted to make, but that's not how it works. Why can't you see this? God dwells in the heavens and he makes himself known where he pleases. When he chooses to work and how he chooses to work is completely up to him. And so we can't build something that mandates God's presence. I can't bring something to God and say, look what I did on my own and he has to respond. He has to work the ways I want him to. We wait patiently 
We look for the ways God's already working. And so how often do we do this? It's, it's so easy to read the Bible and think that I'm the Stephen. To think that, you know, I, I'm like Joseph. Or I, like I'm like Moses, but so often we're not. We're like Joseph's brothers and like the Israelites and like the Sanhedrin. We're so caught up in the things that we want to do that we miss what God's doing. And we think that if we just bring the right things, because I want so badly to bring something to God so that he goes, okay, I, I, I can't ignore that. I gotta respond to that. I want so badly to bring something. I think, you know, if I, just, if I can spend more time in prayer, God's gotta work. If I can just memorize more scripture, I mean, God's gotta be better to me, right? If I can do more, if I keep going to church, if I keep serving in church every single week, God's gotta do more for me, right? No, that's, that's not how God works. It's not a do X and get Y. It's not the way things work. It's not a formula. God isn't mandated to work my way because we often forget, we get so caught up. God is our savior, yes, and he is our friend, absolutely, but we often forget he is also our king. And as someone who follows the king, I don't get to mandate how he works. I listen, I watch for the ways he's called me to work, and I join in and serve him as faithfully and as joyfully as I could. Because the best thing is that not only is he our king, but he is one who is good and gracious to us. And so Stephen, after recounting Israel's history and pointing out how they consistently tried to go ahead of the Lord to make him work on their terms, to bring their plans, their thoughts, their feelings, to say, God, you gotta work this way, he turns the tables on the Sanhedrin and he says this, he says, you stiff-necked people, in verse 51, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He looks dead into the eyes of those accusing him, likely the same people who taught him the stories that he now recounted to them, and says, you got it wrong. You do this too. Just like our ancestors, so are you doing. You can't, you can't see what God's doing, can you? You get so caught up in the ways that you think he had to work, all your religious actions void of the heart, and you're missing it. You're not seeing what God's doing. And so when Peter here, or sorry, when Stephen here uses the phrase stiff-necked, this is the exact phrase that God uses when, he, when Israel rebels from him all the way back in Exodus. That term stiff-necked, it's actually only ever used in the Bible to reference the times that Israel turned away from God. And so there's no, it's not muddy here what Stephen's trying to say to them. He's saying, you are just like them in what you are doing. You are rebelling against God as well. You are just like the Israelites who rebelled against God. Just like the Israelites who tried to make God work on their terms. Just like the Israelites who could not see what God was doing in their midst. And just like the Israelites who had always rejected the people that God had sent them. In verse 52, Stephen says again, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but did not obey it. Stephen boldly, like this is bold, he states to the Sanhedrin, they've taken it a step further, their rebellion, than anyone else before them. Because the Israelites before them, they killed and destroyed and didn't listen to the prophets who were telling of the coming Messiah. 
who were telling of the righteous one of God. But the Sanhedrin took it a step further and didn't listen to and killed the righteous one himself, Jesus. If anyone failed to see what God was doing and missed out on it, it was the Sanhedrin. Because they looked at the pinnacle of what God had always been doing throughout all of redemptive history and said no thanks and stood opposed to him and murdered him right there. And they charged him in the same chamber that they were charging Stephen in now. If anyone failed to see what God was doing, it was the Sanhedrin. And we're so often to think it's just because they didn't like Jesus. It's just because they always wanted to oppose God. But did they hate God? No. They wanted to do everything they could to preserve the Jewish people, God's people. Did they want to tear down God's work? No. They wanted to keep building it. But they were so caught up in the plans and the systems and the thoughts and the feelings that they had that they completely missed out. And even they could not see what God was doing. They acted in complete ignorance and opposition to God and what he was doing when he sent Jesus. You know, my wife Bethany and I, we've just come through like quite a busy season. The holiday season is always busy and it's our first Christmas marriage. So we're, we're going everywhere, we're seeing everyone. And then right before that, we were just finishing up school. And so there's papers and exams and presentations and everything. And to be honest, everything was coming down a little bit to the wire, well, at least for me, because I tend to procrastinate a little bit more than she does. But you know, the church gets busy and Bethany's job gets busy. And so with everything around the holidays, I wanted to be a supportive and good husband. I wanted to do everything I could. And so there were times where, frankly, I'm a lot. So I would step out and Bethany would say, I just, I need to focus. I, I need you to go away. <laughs> and so I would, I would step away and then I would do everything I could. You know, I could make practical things like I could fill her water bottle so that she didn't have to get up. I could make food, which was a rotation of hot dogs, chicken strips, and macaroni. And, you know, I could, I could make sure that things were clean. I could, I could be less distracting. Like, I could, I could not be as loud. I want to do all the practical things. And I was being good. I felt good about myself. I'm being helpful. I am, I am being less distracting. I am keeping her somewhat nourished. And then, at the end of the season, we were reflecting on it, and she said, you know, I appreciate it, but, like, I didn't want you to just leave. It felt like you didn't want to see me at all. And like, man, that didn't feel as great. <laughs> I sat there and it cut me to my heart because I, I thought I was doing all of the right things. But I had completely missed what she actually needed me to do. I had the complete opposite effect that I was intending. I wanted to help reduce the stress and distractions, but I actually made it so much harder because I made her feel so alone. I wanted to do one thing and I had actually ended up doing the complete opposite. And so I would have thought that when the Sanhedrin heard this, that, okay, you've been trying to work with God, but you've missed out. And now you're on the complete opposite side of what you want to do. My thought would be they would have a similar reaction, remorse, like, ah, maybe this Stephen guy's right. Like, maybe we've missed it. Okay, okay, what do we do? But that's not actually what had happened. 
I thought that it would have felt as I had felt and turned and realized what Stephen was saying was true and then we'd have this great revival in Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin and all of Israel be brought back to God. But no, that didn't happen at all. They didn't ask for forgiveness and they still couldn't see what God was doing and they keep kicking against him. If you read with me again in the next section, starting in Acts 7, verse 54, it says this, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. And he saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, the Sanhedrin covered their ears. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Sanhedrin held so tightly to their ways, to their pride, continually resisting the Holy Spirit, that they become fuming with Stephen. And Stephen, rather than resisting the Holy Spirit, the Bible says is filled with the Spirit. And as he looks up, he gets a beautiful glimpse of the glory of Jesus standing at the right hand of God's throne. And so when the Sanhedrin hear this, it's over. When they hear this exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God, they do whatever they need to to stop this whatever's going on with Stephen. They, they, they just they can't see it still. And so they take Stephen out. They bring him outside the city. They begin to throw rocks and stones at him, beating him to death. And yet the whole time, Stephen knows that God is still working. Stephen can still see what God's doing, even when the Sanhedrin can't. In verse 59, while they were still stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him, against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Never once does Stephen hold on to his own well-being. He doesn't hold on to his feelings that he may have. He doesn't count out that God could not work through these people. He doesn't hold to the ways that he wanted to do things more than what God was doing. He's completely submitted to the work and plan of God, knowing that his life and even his death would be used by God. And so he still walks by the Holy Spirit with grace. And I would have thought that if anything could open the eyes of those opposed to God, it would be the undying devotion of a man like Stephen. But even in this, the Sanhedrin cannot see God at work. Moving into Acts chapter 8, Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so in stoning Stephen and by begin, beginning to persecute the church, the Sanhedrin and, Paul would have, and Saul would have thought that they stopped it, would have thought that they were successful. But even in this, they still can't see it. And when we read this, we might think that they're right. But if we look closely, 
even in verses like that, that seem void of hope, there's actually two pretty big ways that God is still working and that they're still not seeing. And hopefully, if we're faithful, we could see today. And it says, And all the apostles were scattered throughout Judea Judea and Samaria. And this phrase should ring a bell. If you think back, all the way back to the very, very first, maybe first, we hit this in the first one, first sermon we ever preached on Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now everyone is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Even in the death and murder of Stephen, God is still working. Because up until now, the church has been only in Jerusalem. It's been amazing what God's been doing, but they're still only in Jerusalem. Not Judea, not Samaria, not the ends of the earth. They haven't witnessed anywhere else. And so God actually uses the death of a man like Stephen to be the catalyst for the gospel to spread further and further. And so Stephen's death is the catalyst for the next stage of God's redemptive plan. Okay, church, this doesn't make sense why it would work this way, but it does. This is how I'm going to take you from being my witnesses in just Jerusalem. Now you're going to go to Judea and Samaria. The next step has officially begun. I don't get it, but that's how God chose to work. And then again, it says this, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then in verse 3 of chapter 8, but Saul began to destroy the church. He going from house to house and he dragged both men and women and he put them in prison. This is the first in Acts that we hear of a man named Saul, but it is definitely not the last. See, Saul here, like the Sanhedrin, like the devout Jewish men, stands completely opposed to Jesus. Saul cannot see what God is doing. But he doesn't stay that way. See, even Saul, a man who had coats laid at his feet while they murder Stephen, a man who approved of the murder of an innocent man for simply believing in Jesus, even he would have his eyes open. So if you know Saul, he later becomes Paul. And Paul becomes one of the most influential missionaries in the history of the church, especially in the early church. But his story starts here, as someone who stands completely opposed, kicking against the work of God any way he can. If we go back to verse 2, it says, Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. This is the last we hear of Stephen. He doesn't come up again. They don't hold him in a super high regard for the rest of church, of the early church history. This is the last we hear of him. His story is relatively short in Scripture. He's a man full of faith, selected for his calling, full of wisdom and seized and arrested upon false accusations, full of the Spirit and speaking with boldness and power to the Sanhedrin, and then stoned to death, and full of grace the entire time. We don't get much of him. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with the story of Stephen? How is this story, this message that we've heard, how is it supposed to change us? Do we simply go and we act like Stephen acted? Use Stephen as this example. I mean, maybe. 
Stephen had a ton of, of good examples to follow, being full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, speaking with boldness, an undying devotion to the gospel. And, and I want those things, but I actually don't think that that's what Stephen is meant to show us. I think that more than that, we need to hear what Stephen said. When we look to Stephen, it's really easy to get caught up in the amazing things he did. But if we do that, if, I, if I'm just striving for that fruit and try harder to be more like Stephen, I'm never going to see that fruit in my life if I forget what he said. Remember Acts 7, verse 48, however the Most High does not dwell, live in houses made by human hands. The prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Just like your ancestors, you always resist the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be like Joseph's brothers. I don't want to be like the Israelites, always resisting the plans of God, missing out, can't, not being able to see what he's doing. I don't want to be like the Sanhedrin. I, I want to see God at work. I want to see what he's doing. I want to see him working around me. I want to see him working in me to transform me into a follower of Jesus, devout, godly like Stephen, like Peter, like Paul would later become. But if I want to do that, I got to stop acting like the Israelites acted. I got to stop making God serve me and look for the ways he calls me to serve him. And so if you want to see God at work this next year, that's what we got to do. We got to acknowledge that sometimes we've been living like God works for us. And we've got to stop trying to make God serve me and look for the ways that he's called me to serve him. Church, we cannot miss this going into the next year because it's good to have plans. It's good to have ideas. But if we hold so tightly to those that we leave no room for God to work, we're going to miss out on everything. If we hold so tightly to the feelings that I have and how God should work, the people that I think he's got to call this year, the ways that I've been doing this, if I hold so tightly to those, I'm completely going to miss out. This is the message that Stephen calls us to. This year, would we be so fervently praying, God, would you open my eyes to see? Because if I don't do that, I become just as stiff-necked as Joseph's brothers, just as rebellious as the people of Israel, just like the Sanhedrin who holds so tightly to the things that they had that they missed out on what God was doing. Would we be so fervently praying that we could see God work, that we would be a people be a church filled with the Holy Spirit and impacting those around us in mighty, mighty ways. All for the glory of God. Is that what we want to see this year? And that's how we start. And so maybe it starts with acknowledging the ways that we've lived like God works on our schedule. We've lived like God serves us. Lord, forgive me for the ways that, that I think you serve me that I try and make you fit in my box. Lord, give me eyes to see the work that you're doing and a heart to serve you there. Not where I want to work, but where you've called me to work. Would you give me eyes to see where you're working, in my family, in my work, in my school, in my church, wherever, and would you give me a heart to serve there? And you know, if we want to enter this next year, looking and seeing what God is doing, it very much starts with acknowledging what God has already done. You know, Stephen saw it. Peter saw it. Paul would later see it. 
Stephen preached to the council, what Peter would preach to all of Jerusalem, what Paul would preach to the entire world, it was Jesus. If we want to see what God's working, we've got to acknowledge what he's done in Christ. Because Jesus, the righteous Son of God, Word became flesh, Emmanuel, perfect in every way, pierced for my transgressions, for my sin, for your sin. Crushed and killed by the very people he came to save so that their sins, our sin, my sin, could be forgiven. And I could come to know God, to walk with him, to see what he's doing, and to jump in. That's what Jesus came to do. And so if we lose sight of that, if we lose sight of Jesus, we become just as stiff-necked as everybody else. And so today, as we close 2023, if that's the first time you're hearing that, or the thousandth, I want to ask you, what if this year, 2024, it's coming, it's got lots of stuff coming, what if this year is the year that you and I focus so fervently on Jesus, the person and work of Christ, the way that he changes everything? What if this is the year we focus on him in such a radical way that nothing else matters? Just Jesus. That's all I need. I want to focus on him because if I can focus on Jesus, I'll see what God's doing. I'll be able to jump in. And if what if this is the year that we see God work in ways we could never imagine all around us and in the deepest parts of my heart that I could never, ever think of?